uh, Polaroid, and that's why Edwin Land. That's why Edwin gave, gave the, the money. money. I yeah. see. Yeah. Two, three. So Caleb and I went to graduate school in Cambridge, England. Oh. He was at MIT undergrad, and we he realized we both had been awarded one of the prizes there. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My prize getting kind of dropped off after that. Like I cleaned up at MIT. Well, then after that, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just the problem with becoming older. <laughs> yes. <laughs> two, I love that idea. Did you? I did too. Yeah. Just saw I don't my think old I would. Have... Brothers last week, I was up there at MIT for cool. an APS meeting. Actually. Oh, that's right. The APS is in Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The March meeting. One, two, yeah, three, four, five, I'm part five, of six, the, seven, eight. The April one, how are you? Two, how are you? Part of the April. One, I get to hear two, everything. How are you? Two. <laughs> All right. Isn't it warm, Philip? It's warm. Yeah. <laughs> One, two. You're going to get attached. <laughs> I think I'm going to take that. Sorry. <coughs> Can't go to. Who did you go with? Oh yeah, same as mine. Is it Courtney? Have you done this before? Yeah. Have you done this? She's great. No, you? No. Did you get a big advance? Wow. I'm curious. Um, it does, yeah. I'll ask you later. Not one, one, two. It's downstairs. Uh, I know it's gauche, but I'm just curious. Is all this going to be on the website, the whole thing? Live now. And oh, it's live. <laughs> <laughs> Not all these friends. Because I don't want to take notes. I figure I don't have to. It's going to be on the website. Did you... Did you choose not to go with university presses, or did you think about that? It's the reach killer. It's the reach. I can tell yeah. you that. No, I mean, it was, yeah, there, were, there were four publishers interested in mine. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had just about the best. Yeah, two of the university presses. At least in the And they just did. Yale tried. Did Yale try? Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's. What they can do. Whereas Riverhead is like a machine, so that's. Me too. I mean, your experience in the game, I wasn't. And with the first book, I realized that it did very well critically and all that. But, they you record know. these things and they have some it's vast archive of videos on their, their website, some of which are very interesting. They, like, they know, use my Rolodex. Right, I also didn't have an agent at that time. Which also didn't help. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize any of these things. Yeah, yeah. No, well, who, who would? Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Hello. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna keep us in line. <laughs> now, what's, what is your? Sorry, I'm covering this because it's on. What, what's your background? I'm a sick. Okay. From kind of embarrassingly sparse to standing in the middle of it. So do you go back to the office? Various things. Oh, like, like, I agree. 
I have an apartment in Cambridge, so I go back and forth. So I'm kind of, I'm not formally involved in the alumni. That's quite a trek back and forth between New Haven. And so you live in... I'm Ed Nersessian, the director of the center. Thank you for being here this afternoon. Uh, before I uh, present the uh, participants in the roundtable, I'd like to say a couple of words about uh, the upcoming programs. Uh, our uh, next program is going to be in April. I think it's April 27th. It's on the Anthropocene about climate change. Uh, after that, we have a roundtable in May on uh, shame. And then in uh, June, early June, I think it's the 7th of June, we have a roundtable on status. Uh, and we are now working on the roundtables for the fall. We have narrowed down to about five or six subjects, and I'll, they'll be on our website shortly. Uh, I will present uh, the participants alphabetically, and they can raise their hands so uh, you know who they are. And I'm going to be very brief in their bios. You all have, I think, the printouts. Uh, Kenneth Dill is Professor of Physics and Chemistry at Stony Brook University and Director of the Laufer Center for Physical Biology. He helped solve the protein folding problem and is interested in the principles of proteins, cell evolution, and the early molecular origins of life. Priya Natarayan. Priyambada Natarayan, I should say, more formally. Uh, is professor of astronomy and physics at Yale University. His research is focused on exotica in the universe, dark matter, dark energy, and black holes. She's noted for her key contributions to two of the most challenging problems in cosmology, mapping the distribution of dark matter and tracing the growth history of black holes. Some of you have maybe uh, gotten hold of what we printed out about a prediction she made that has finally been proven correct. She made the prediction 20 years ago uh, when she was a graduate student at uh, Cambridge University, she predicted that cosmic winds driven by a black hole could potentially carry gas and other 
star-making materials thousands of years away from their host galaxy. Uh, and apparently now that has been proven correct. There was some controversy around it, but now it has been proven correct. Dennis Overby, sitting there, is the cosmic affairs correspondent for the New York Times. His reporting can range from the mating habits of black holes and zero gravity fashion shows to science in the movies, the status of Pluto and the fate of the universe. He's the author of two books, Lonely Hearts of the Cosmos, the story of the scientific quest for the secret of the universe, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Award for nonfiction, and Einstein in Love, a scientific romance. Caleb Scharf, research, he is a director of astrobiology at Columbia University. His research career spans cosmology, exoplanetary science, and astrobiology. He currently leads efforts at Columbia University in New York to understand the nature of exoplanets and living environments in the universe. He is also Global Science Coordinator of the Earth Life Science Institute's Origins, of, Origins Network at the Tokyo Institute for Technology, and the co-founder of Y-House Inc. That's it, Y-House Inc. Uh, the round table today was uh, initiated by uh, a communication Ed Turner and I had together, and uh, he has helped me in the planning of this round table. He's professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton University and an affiliate scientist at the University of Tokyo, Tokyo's Kavli Institute for the Physics and Mathematics of the Universe. He has carried out extensive astronomical observations at numerous U.S. and international observatories. Working in both theoretical and observational astrophysics, he has published more than 250 research papers with concentration on a broad range of topics. So with that, we can start. What are we talking okay. about? <laughs> Should Life I start? and round tables. Okay. Um, so I thought I'd start by talking about. Um, so the theme of this afternoon is life in the universe. And um, I want to mention two aspects that particularly fascinate me. First is a recent development which is the expansion of the code of life, as it were, the sort of development of the, the synthesis of um, new eight additional four letters in the genetic code, synthetically done, just reported very recently, just about a month ago, and I think Ken can probably elaborate a little bit more on what the implications are, but the implications are just astounding because these additional four uh, constituents, you know, in our DNA we have G, C, A, and T, um, and these expansion of those four to eight 
just combinatorially sort of increases the number of ways in which you could possibly create life and broaden the definition of what life really is. So I found that very, very ex new development, very exciting to read. And so I don't actually work on astrobiology myself, but you know, I regard myself as someone who is, uh, takes a lot of intellectual risks and is sort of bold. And so I wanted, you know, I've thought a lot about the ways in which our conceptions of what life is and, um, and therefore its probability of occurring as we know it, similar to us. I think we've limited our possibilities. And I think we should open up our imaginations to really speculate about sort of wild other forms of life. Um, and I think, you know, in the past, historically, people have been bolder than we have been. Um, and I sort of invite us to think more broadly about what could be life. And the second point I sort of wanted to make was about um, a new way to think about what really life is and thinking about life and intelligent life. So this is, these, have been, these have been debates in the field across disciplines. Um, maybe think about life not just as the possibility for self-replication and so on, but also think about it more broadly so that we can bring in the concept of intelligent life as the ability to produce information and the period for which that information could last. So we could think about how advanced a civilization is, for example, because these are the these are going to come up when we talk about how we assess uh, whether we can have intelligent life elsewhere. And I think there's a way, you know, if you look at the amount of information that's, oops, <laughs> it's just you in the past. That's me in the past. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I think if we, you know, I like to think about, so if you look at uh, DNA and how much information there is, right, and, and we look at all the information in the books and the knowledge that we've created, we actually quantify that, I think this capacity to generate information that is multifold, so in our case it's about you know, 500,000 to a million times more than the material that the information that constitutes us, that could be a new way of thinking about intelligence. I'll just stop Subject there. Subject of my new book. <laughs> oh, and I wrote an essay about it. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually wanted to jump in. So you brought up, and I think it's really interesting, and I'm, I'm curious to get people's reactions. This, this new piece of work, I think it was Steve Benner and his group, yep. who constructed uh, essentially DNA with eight letters, if you will, eight base pairs rather than, uh, in, the, in the alphabet rather than four. And, you know, and I think it's, it's clearly a, it's a wonderful technical piece of work, but I have some questions about it. I'm wondering if anyone else has some thoughts on this. So, you know, so it seems to me it's a proof of possibility, yeah. but it's not a proof of existence. And part of the reason I think it's not proof of existence in any, by any stretch of the imagination is it's one thing to manufacture a, a set of molecules that do something 
seemingly more than the, the, the naturally evolved set of molecules, the DNA. But that doesn't tell you that an organism could have evolved somewhere that utilizes eight base pairs sure, sure. because of the burden that comes with that. I assume, I'm looking at you because you may have a, a response to this, you know, to make use of eight letters in your code means you have to have a, a, a set of machinery, molecular machinery, that isn't overly burdened by the energetic demands of suddenly having to right. do more. Is that, how do you feel about that? I agree. I think where these new bases are going to be of value is drug discovery, because they're going to give us better handles on being able to go after DNA and go after the proteins that they make. I don't think it's going to tell us very much about what life could have done for the following reason, that what uh, living systems now use is 20 amino acids, and so there's this 64 uh, option code at the moment, genetic code. And as you say, there's cost too. On the one hand, there's combinatorics, and that's an advantage because it gives you a new space of what options could I have. And yet biology uh, settled on essentially 20, a few others, but essentially 20 amino acids. And as you say, there are costs, there are fitness costs to everything. And one of the things that you see, especially in bacteria, over time, is they really strip down their genomes and they strip down their machinery to be just as efficient as they possibly can. And so if a 40 letter, if 40 amino acids were a good idea, I think we would see it. And we don't. And I think the reason for that is because diversity, chemical diversity, is the thing that's so powerful in proteins that you don't have in nucleic acids. Chemical diversity right now, with the 20 amino acids, we have plus charge, minus charge, hydrophobic interactions, salt bridges, hydrogen bonding. We cover the whole spectrum of the kinds of things you want to do as a chemist. It covers all the kinds of little pieces of molecule that you want to, to um, catalyze chemicals. But contingent on the environment and what is available? So we're talking That's about right. Earth-like conditions, <laughs> right? So um, I was just arguing for the possibility of imagination <laughs> with these, right? Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, not necessarily um, a realistic rubric for how you would make life. But isn't everything contingent? The ways in which things have evolved are contingent on the base conditions that were available on Earth. So, so you, you could imagine. Argue, you can argue yes and no. I mean, hmm. there's a lot. There's this uh, classic comment um, that nothing in biology can be understood except in the light of evolution. And that's sort of the point of view of I need to know the history of something in order to know how it works. On the other hand, it's much more like a sort of thermodynamics problem. Once you know the environment, you can specify what the thing is, what the biological thing is. Think about an eyeball. I don't need to know where it came from, but it's really, really optimized to do the job that it does. It sees very well, it can see over nine orders of magnitude of light intensity between night and day and so forth. Really, really optimized. And they don't have to know a lot about the history to know about this. One point, com coming back to your point though, also about polymers is that not only the DNA, but also in proteins now, there's new diversity. And um, a colleague at, at, uh, in California has developed these molecules called peptoids. It's a different kind of molecule than a peptide, different kind of molecule than a protein. And so it has different kinds of monomer units, but they're kind of similar in certain ways. And it turns out they do a lot of the same kinds of things that real proteins do. So in principle, 
uh, life could have gone that way too. It could have gone a lot of ways. And why it ended up where it did, I don't know. I, if I could say, I think that the, your first point about the, the new letters in the code sort of highlights one of the uh, trade-offs or horns of a dilemma that, that our basic genetic code already presents us with. You know, one of the most amazing things about biology is the incredible diversity of life forms we have on Earth. You know, I, we always say from giant sequoias to, you know, you know, single-celled organisms of a huge variety of sorts to complicated organisms, mammals and things like us, you know, you name it. It's hard to even think about the huge diversity of things, yet they all have the same uh, genetic code in operation. Well, why is that possible? It's like, it's the same reason you can write a huge variety of books or novels using the letters of the alphabet. You've right. bought into this combinatoric world where a finite number of things let you do a, a huge variety of things. So you can write a novel that makes you a giant sequoia tree, or you can write a novel that, you know, makes you a fungus. And uh, you can do it all with the same alphabet. And you're adding a few letters to the alphabet, as it were. But the other side of that, the, you know, and when we first discovered, and, uh, when it was first discovered that, you know, these monomers that make up the polymers, the letters of the alphabet, can be synthesized in uh, natural environments fairly readily and probably occur, we know it in fact occur in many places in nature, made everyone feel very optimistic about the topic today, life in the universe. There would be life elsewhere. We could easily imagine they have the same alphabet. And, many places in the universe. But then it, the other horn of that dilemma is it becomes like monkeys typing Shakespearean sonnets. You have, you know, there's so many ways of putting these letters together. The chance that blind processes, before you get evolution started, which selects for th certain things, that blind processes will write you a Shakespearean sonnet or a novel or something, starts getting smaller and smaller. and Personally, if you know, it was somehow revealed to us that there was no non-terrestrial life anywhere in the observable universe, if it was just dead, dead, dead out there everywhere, and then I had to make a guess at why, my guess would be that this is the only place where the monkeys managed to put together a sonnet, and everywhere else they wrote nonsense and, and life never got started. Um, I'm not saying that's the case, I'm just saying that would be my best guess as a possibility. Adding some letters to the alphabet doesn't help that problem. In fact, it makes it worse. That's extra keys the monkeys could hit on the keyboard and, you know, change a but word into what some... What is nonsense and what is Shakespeare is defined by us and our culture. You could have a culture that defines what we call nonsense as valuable. Well, it could be that there... Right. In fact, I think it's more likely, in fact, that if there's something else out there, it's quite different from us. Exactly. But... It still has to be something that works, you know, to, that reproduces itself or that at least persists even if it doesn't reproduce itself. So I think that's these new codes sort of add to that, that uh, trade-off that we face. I like the idea of nonsense being valued or sort of, <laughs> I mean, but then of course, you know, how do you define nonsense? Is it just randomness? is seen as, I, it, this is drifting into the question about intelligence and other things, but I, I really like also that. Also value. Of what, how do you, 
how do you how do we uh, generate systems as a peoples of what is considered valuable and so it goes into other but I just want to close out with the eyeballs I mean do you think that do you not reckon that our eyeballs like a set of eyeballs let's forget about ours could have evolved very differently in a methane rich atmosphere and if our atmosphere did not have the diffractive properties that it did that provided the basis for our eyeballs to have the range they optimized for that right so could you couldn't you contemplate that you could have eyeballs that are optimized for methane rich absolutely what right? i would say is the argument I meant to make before is that I don't need to know the history, but I certainly need to know the environment, because that's really what Darwin's all about. It's about matching to an environment. And so if your environment is totally different, let's say it's black and dark like at the bottom of the ocean, then eyeballs wouldn't make any sense at all. I would spend a lot of energy on stuff that wouldn't be relevant. But if you, the history, so this issue of eyeballs versus not eyeballs has also come up a lot in sort of evolution and intelligent design debates of it's a complex system and how could you get a complex system unless there were some hand in the, in the making of it all and so forth. But it, if you look at the history of the especially sort of early organisms like snails and mollusks and so on, what you see is a pretty nice story, whether it's true or not, we never know, but it's a nice story and that is that in the earliest mollusks, what you see is a flat row of cells where some of them are a little bit more light sensitive. And that gives you some value. Then, if you go further down the evolutionary tree, what you see is it's curved a little bit. That row of cells is now not flat anymore, it's curved. And that way, it turns out you can collect light. Then you get a pinhole. You keep going further down the tree, you get a pinhole. Then you get a lens. Then you get a complicated eye. So you can sort of see what's going on here. It's, it's detecting light, and it's trying to get finer and finer resolution in that way. But I totally agree with you. If you, you I, I think uh, biologists often speak of genotype to phenotype, which means our DNA tells everything, but it's missing one major thing, and that is what's the environment that we're optimized for. Just to, to not, not to, I mean, because it's such a specific example, but I think this is true that the, the camera eye that we share with cephalopods and so on, I mean, it actually evolved in marine environments. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's kind of like your methane environment. It already evolved in a different environment, and now actually, with with the adaptation of that, because we're walking around on the surface, right. And one point coming back to your point, Ed, about um, the combinatorics. We uh, there's been a lot of interest in a number of these combinatorics arguments. Some uh, having to do with my direct area, which is uh, protein folding, they also have many degrees of freedom. And how does a protein find the right structure in a reasonable time? It does so when it fold, proteins fold up in microseconds in your body. And so clearly, the protein has knows how to do all this stuff. But but the question you raise of sequence space is a very interesting one, I think, because um, the arguments are: if I have 20 different amino acids that are making up each bead on the necklace of a protein molecule, what is the likelihood that I would be able to get exactly the right string of beads that would code for one of your favorite proteins, let's say lysozyme. Typical protein is 100 or 1,000 amino acids long, and if I have 20 possible options at each position, I have 20 to the 100th 
is the size of the space that I would have to explore in order to find that one protein. And so the issue is, gee, that's essentially impossible. Probability is zero. One over 20 to the 100th is 10 to the minus 130th. That would never happen. And over the years, what we've found, though, is that what matters is mechanism. And so it's very much in the monkey on the typewriter analogy. It's very much um, the monkey's hitting each key independently and randomly. But if the monkey was hitting keys in some correlated way, it turns out you could do very, very much better very quickly. And in the protein case, looking at protein sequences, how would I get lysosome? The critical question between those who think the probability is zero and people who say, no, it could happen. Uh, the critical issue is, how do you ask the probability question? What is the probability of getting the sequence of lysosomes? That's one question. Or, what is the probability of getting any sequence that folds to the structure of lysosomes? They seem very similar, but they're 100 orders of magnitude different in the answer that you get. And so mechanism-wise, um, what's been found is that, yes, we have a 20-letter code today. We have 20 amino acids that could go here or here or here. But what's relevant for fig figuring out how the protein folds and then how it functions is just the binary code. It's some amino acids, half the amino acids are oily, and they don't like water, and so they glom together, and the other half are not so oily. So you have blue and red beads instead of 20 different types of beads. So if I have two to the 100 instead of 20 to the 100, already I've just disappeared 100 orders of magnitude of the problem right there. And there's now some experiments that indicate that something like that is roughly right. I mean, it seems to me, again, on our question of life in the universe, that there's, that there's sort of two basic possibilities uh, and places in between them. But at the extreme, it's that the monkeys are, it's completely right. random. Right, right, right. And at the other extreme, there's some deterministic sequence of mm -hmm. chemical reactions, right. you know, that puts together just the molecules that, uh, that we need to get life started, which is, sort of sounds scary in a way, because it means life scary in, in, from a sort of scientist point of view, and that it so, somehow would imply that the existence of life was built into the basic laws of, right. Right. of chemistry and physics. Um, if that were the case, though, then we would very likely, I think, have tons of life out there in the universe. It would because it yeah. looks like that we have tons of environments. Yeah. I mean, 20, 25 years ago, we couldn't have when we didn't know anything much about exoplanets. It could have been there was no life because there was no one suitable environments. But we're pretty sure there are plenty of suitable environments. So if it's a deterministic process, you know, we're off to a Star Wars universe, so to speak. Right where every planet has something interesting going on from a biology point of view, many planets. Of course, it could also be somewhere in between where there's many, you know, it's just like the monkeys don't have to type exactly that sonnet. There are many sonnets that could have been written, and maybe there's enough of them that it's fairly common. But, you know, between those two extremes, you get an empty universe or a full universe, and I think based on what we know now, and I'm no biologist, I'm sure you know better, but it's at least conceivable that it's sort of anywhere in between. Life could be quite common, you know, slightly common, quite rare, very, you know, it's, it's very important in science to keep track of what you don't know. And I think, despite the fact that I think popular belief is that there's probably quite a bit of life in the universe, uh, 
and there's certainly a lot of popular interest in that. Dennis may be able to say more about that than, than the rest of us, but you know, it's, we really don't know the answer, I would say, at this point. Right. There's a lot of room between the impossible and the inevitable. Right. Uh, and right. Thank you for saying that so much better. Than I. <laughs> I th and I think um, in, in chemistry and biology, for example, a lot of the issue is how long does it take? So things that can be pretty close to the impossible and can still happen if you have enough little agents. And this is one of the great things about biology is you have cells everywhere and bacteria everywhere and organisms everywhere. And so uh, in Darwinian processes, it also matters just how many attempts you're making. And if you've just got a huge population uh, and you've got a long enough time, you can sooner or later get there. And I mean, life, I mean, it's, I don't think it was close to inevitable because we, it certainly took a long time to develop it here on Earth. As far as anybody can tell, I guess you only know better than I do, but I, it seems like it was about four billion years ago. It depends on what your clock is, with what's short and what's long. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you start with sort of Earth being about four billion years old, we had life by 3.5 billion uh, single cells, and then another billion later we had multi-cells and so on. If you take that, uh, a half a billion years is not quick, I think, so it, it's clearly not something that just happens like instantly, I think. Especially since there's a selection effect. We had to be on one of the planets where it happened, otherwise we right. wouldn't be right. here. Right. <laughs> I have to say that half a billion years doesn't sound like such a short length of time if you think about cosmology. Exactly. Uh, right. <laughs> so, well, one question I have is, how, what would it take anybody here to convince anybody here that they're, they had found life someplace else? I mean, how, how hostage are we to the, our conceptions of it yeah. that we have? I mean, how, how would you know what, what signal from another exoplanet would actually convince you there was life there? So, I mean, this is something that a lot of discussion has taken place on in recent years. And it's interesting just you know, looking at how different scientific disciplines approach this. So for example, astronomers who are looking at exoplanets and hoping in the near future to be able to get slightly more sophisticated data about planets that may or may not resemble the Earth tend to talk about biosignatures. But it's a spectra, right? Often just, yeah, so biosignatures covers a number of things. So one potential biosignature is what life might do to the chemistry of a planet, in particular the atmosphere. Um, and you know, so the idea is with future telescopes, we may be able to, to probe using light filtered through the atmospheres of those planets. We may be able to see whether there are things like oxygen or water, CO2, conceivably even methane and so on, all of which we, we think may have an association with biospheres based largely on what's happening here on Earth. So that's a very simplistic approach, though. And already, even before we've done it, we're sort of running into problems with it. So, for example, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, planetary scientists and astronomers who are interested in this question have, have begun to recognize that you could actually have, in a number of circumstances, a rocky planet that has an oxygenated atmosphere, but no life. And the oxygen comes from a combination of 
chemistry that happens in, in the atmosphere itself, the breakdown of molecules like water or CO2 by, by ultraviolet photons, and depending on the kind of surface chemistry you have, that may or may not get mopped up by the surface of the planet. So you can actually produce a planet with an oxygen-rich atmosphere with no biosphere whatsoever. So then, of course, you say, well, you've got to look for the other signature mo molecules and build up a story. And so that's, an, uh, you know, uh, I think that's a very, <laughs> I'm going to be sound terrible because I'm an astronomer, it's a naive way of doing things. <laughs> I think part of what you're asking is a much deeper question, um, which is perhaps more relevant to looking for life on Mars, for example. And that's been a topic of discussion. You know, the, the ideal thing would be something to crawl past your microscope and <laughs> sort of wave at you and, and look familiar. Um, Shakespeare. That would be quite a thing if it, <laughs> or if it was dragging a typewriter and a monkey. Um, and then, yeah. So then, there's all this discussion. You know, it comes back to actually something you raised at the beginning, which is, you know, what is life, and. And maybe you disagree with this, but my impression after talking to lots of people over the last few years about this is within science, there's a hundred different yeah. definitions that people point to as their sort of favorite way of encapsulating the idea of this thing we call a living system. Um, some people point to reproduction or you know, imperfect reproduction, right, in order to have Darwinian selection or metabolism or entropy as some gauge of, of what's going on. Uh, and it's, I, I mean, actually, I'd be interested to hear people's thoughts on why, why it's difficult to come up with that answer, you know, because it speaks directly to recognizing life. Yeah. We think that we're alive. I mean, I think I know that, but <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> um, um. Well, people sometimes say, you know, the huge fundamental human question that astrobiology addresses is, are we alone? But I think the number two question, almost as important, is how different or alike, if we're not alone, yeah. how, you know, are we unusual or not? It's, it's, and I think that question, the first question I would say is even easier because we can search, but until we find something, the second question is really impossible. It's as though you wanted to study, I don't know, dogs, and you'd only ever seen one dog. Right. And, and so then you don't know what properties this dog has are specific to that individual dog or to that breed of dogs or to dogs in general. And, you right. know, you're just lost. And, yeah, it's uh, hard to extract dogness. Yeah, especially without a fundamental first principles understanding, you know, like... Biology's like that's a dog, and modern biology's like that's a dog's genome. Geome, but we're not, you know, at the level of being able to answer questions uh, like defining life at a fundamental level. It's a little like, as my colleagues Chris Tribe and Carol Cleland pointed out, before the atomic theory of matter, uh, natural philosophers, as they were called in those days, or alchemists, argued about what water is, what makes something water. Mm -hmm. Is it that you can drink it? Is it that it can dissolve things? Is it it can freeze and boil into steam? And there were, uh, even Leonardo argued about what makes something water or not water. And, and there were arguments that they knew how to make sulfuric acid. Some thought that was a purer form of water than seawater. Mm. 
because it dissolves things much better than seawater. Seawater is almost saturated already with dissolved minerals, so it's hard to dissolve things in it. You know, when the atomic theory of matter came along, we have H2O, the, the discussion was over. And we knew what water was. So if we could ever have a discussion of, I mean, an understanding of life at that sort of first principles level, then we would be in a lot better position to talk about how to look for it and what would demonstrate it's there. But I very much agree with Caleb that discussions of detecting life on exoplanets these days are, well, whistling in the dark, hopeful, let's say. Uh, but, you know, it's, it looks like it'll be really hard. I think it would be very difficult to do it with spectroscopy. I think chemical definitions and even basic biochemical definitions are very tricky. Um, one of the classic sort of disproofs of simple arguments about what is life is metabolizes, uses oxygen, reproduces, and it turns out a candle flame does that. And then we're going to run into problems now with artificial intelligence, too. What, what's real and what's alive and what's not alive. I think, you know, if you think about people, there's something, and cells for that matter, there's something about purposeful behaviors, but I don't know any spectroscopic way you're ever going to see something like that. Well, people have talked about looking for Pollution, industrial pollution, <laughs> Com compounds, quite, quite seriously, compounds that we cannot think of any non-biological, uh, sorry, we cannot think of any, uh, yeah, non-biological way to produce them. However, intelligence, it assumes well, a unfortunately, power. even that, it turns out nature is really good at making things that are unexpected. So I recently heard a discussion, so chlorofluorocarbons have been held up as one example of a a technologically produced compound that has a, a definite impact on a planetary environment by you know, removing ozone in the atmosphere. But I've recently heard work done, people actually studying Earth's deep past. Um, there's this giant um, volcanic lava system called the Deccan Traps, and realizing that there's a geophysical, geochemical route by which Earth could have produced chlorofluorocarbons all by itself, you know, 200 million years ago without, well, without, yeah, without the intervention of intelligent life. So maybe pollutants aren't even a particularly good mm. signature of, of any kind of life. Planets are quite good at polluting themselves. So I feel that we're not ever going to converge on one. I think it's not going to be as simple as H2O. I think it's, well, probably, there'll probably be many different um, definitions of life and Maybe what we'll be looking for is some kind of Venn diagram to kind of make the decision of, okay, is this actually life? But Caleb, as I started out in the beginning, right, I liked your sort of your thread of trying to define intelligent life um, in terms of information production and the persistence of. Yeah, and it also. I mean, it does relate to this question of looking for life in the universe. I mean, rather ironically, right, if you, if you found a planet that was beaming out radio, structured radio signatures on a TV show, you definitely know there's life there, right? We wouldn't... We wouldn't it would depend on the show. It would depend on the show and the, 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 you mean the, the channel carrying it. Um, so, I mean, then for that reason, just to mention, you know, within my field, there has been a growing interest in or resuscitation of this field of SETI, of search for extraterrestrial intelligence, although now we call it techno-signatures, because that's a, less of a trigger word for, mm -hmm. for you know, people's memories of, of what were thought to be failures in the past, but actually part of the issue with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is we've looked so little 
we really have looked so little. But you know, that's the remarkable thing, is if you got that, you would definitely, unambiguously, I think, be able to say that there was recognizable life on a planet. Mm -hmm. And that feeds into this question of, yes, you know, the nature of intelligent life and the, the information that we carry around externally to us. I mean, humans are pretty peculiar in that respect. Um, you know, we carry around and propagate into the future far more information than is encoded and in our... Generate. And generate, and constantly generate, and the rate of generation has been growing essentially exponentially, certainly in recent times. Um, but you can tra track it back throughout human history, back to the first, you know, the first exchange of a story around a campfire. Uh, you know, or cave art. Or matter. cave art. Um, Dawkins would call it, you know, memes, the, the generation of memes and those, their propagation, but I think it, it, it's even more diverse than that. Um, that is an interesting quality that we have and of course it also but it and it's conferred great evolutionary advantages to us you can write a, write a book about you know don't eat this plant because it will kill you and a hundred years later someone will read that book and it will save their life right <laughs> so there's a certain um, advantage to be able to store this information but it comes at a cost there's an energetic burden to it um, and I so, so what is the, the current status of the SETI-like funding and programs? I mean, I, I know that in the 1980s it was federally funded. It died in the mm. 1990s. Um, what is the status? I don't know. Dennis, do you want to say something? Yeah. So there's, I don't think there's ever since, I think, 1992 when they pulled the plug on SETI that there's been any federal funding for actual radio searches. But there was private funding? Yeah, I think there's private funding. They, there's this the SETI Institute, which was yeah. all the SETI scientists said, well, okay, we're going to raise our own money, and they're quite successful, and they, you know, Paul Allen built this big array of radio telescopes for them in Northern California, and now they have Yuri Milner, yeah. who's like spending jillions of dollars Dollar. leasing telescopes and uh, you know, wants to send an iPhone to Alpha Centauri, which is an amazing <laughs> idea. But well, Ed is involved in that. Yeah, being on the advisory oh, right. board of the Breakthrough Initiative, such as the iPhone to the Stars Project, I should say, uh, uh, the Breakthrough Foundation, which is Yuri Milner's foundation funding of SETI, is a separate initiative, although they're connected with some of the same people involved. Um, and is spending $100 million over 10 years, which I think is the, so I think the current rate of spending on, on uh, SETI, and it's basically a classical radio SETI looking for signals from, you know, radio signals sent out uh, by putative extraterrestrial civilizations, is probably the highest rate of spending on SETI that we have ever had in history. And is in, the design of that experiment is to, uh, Caleb mentioned that we hadn't looked very much the goal of, of that, uh, it's called Breakthrough Listen. Everything is called Breakthrough Something in that world. Um, so Breakthrough Listen's goal is to expand the volume of phase space frequencies and sensitivities and so on by about a factor of a thousand over what's been done before. So however little we have looked so far, the goal is to have looked a thousand times more by the time this is done. It started a few years ago, so uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly when, but we probably have another six or seven years right. before uh, the project. And uh, a lot of the but, that, but that's still a tiny fraction of the galaxy, even when they've, right. they've well, you, you can look done that thousand amplification. 
Yeah, that's certainly true. And it's very hard to prove something isn't there. Yeah. Right? Almost no matter how much you looked, yeah. um, you could, uh, uh, you know, always look much more because you can look for arbitrarily small signals. You can look at different wavelengths. I, I don't think I'll be talking too much out of school to say that Yuri asked me for advice on how to, what to spend money on in uh, a SETI search. And uh, I should have mentioned that he took none of my advice, which is probably <laughs> why he has so much. But, uh, but there's a lot of possible ways of looking that are not just searching for radio signals. Right, it's still, still very anthropocentric, right? I want to come back to that. So yeah. um, I remember mentioning to Caleb when we met last time that there's a book uh, written in 1864 by Camille Flammarion. It's called Lumen, and it's imaginative. It's about a planet where you have sentient plants that digest and eat and breathe and speak to each other in a tongue that we wouldn't understand. Um, so I mean, you know, all these ideas of looking for it, you know, looking for radio signals, it's very tied to a very anthropomorphic view of life. So how do we expand? Well, I think, yeah, no, so you're absolutely right. And it's also extremely skewed in terms of, if you think about the history of life on Earth, for most of the history of life on Earth, Different there would stages, be right? no techno-signatures whatsoever. Um, it would all be chemistry or colors or, or you know, other variations on the planet. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's already almost stacking the odds against it. If, if our planet is in some way representative of how evolution plays out, we obviously don't know that. Right? The fact that technological beings have only existed for maybe the last 100,000 years, we have really no idea whether that's the norm or whether that's some extreme. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. And this is one of the, in that whole field, um, it's very, very challenging as well. People always, I think, fall into the trap of, the, well, a species would do this, wouldn't it? Okay. <laughs> which is completely <laughs> skewed towards our own, and it's usually skewed to you know Western European <laughs> ways of thinking about the world anyway, um, and that is that is problematic, and I'm not sure we. Well, it's limiting. Right? It's severely limiting. Right? Incredibly yeah. limiting. Yeah. But, yeah. but the the problem with not doing that, is, you know, it's like the old thing is looking for your keys under the light post. If you don't look for something that's like us. You don't know, you know, Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you may not get there. If you don't know what you're looking for, you may not, you may not find it. And I think we've seen a recent example of that in uh, discussions of the interstellar small body that passed through uh, the solar system back in uh, late 2017. Uh, Oumuamua is the name it was given. Um, it has a number of puzzling properties, and, and the idea has been put forward that it was some piece of of alien uh, uh, artifacts, you know, some sort of spacecraft or space debris of some uh, interstellar uh, traveling culture. And, I mean, it could be, but the problem with a hypothesis like that, the problem of just looking mm -hmm. for a civilization that's not like us, is that it has too much explanatory and not ex excessive explanatory and insufficient predictive power. You can explain anything and predict nothing because right. we know nothing about their capabilities or motives and you know no matter what happens you could always say well that's because the aliens wanted to do this or wanted 
to fool us or do something and you know could be but but it's very hard to engage that hypothesis in a in a scientific right. way doesn't mean it isn't true but it's just hard to do anything with it and i mean i think the one positive thing about for example the umuamua work and particularly some some of these interpretations or or analyses that suggest oh maybe it was a you know a solar sail or a light sail or something like that the one positive element of all of that discussion i think is that sort of in Bayesian terms, right, instead of setting the prior to zero possibility that something unusual might have a relationship to intelligence or other speed, to give it a little leeway. You know, it's not, it's not zero, it's not one, it's some tiny, tiny number. Um, and that to me is very interesting because we haven't really done that before. Right? We've, we've tended to say, well, that's such, you know, we just don't think that's going to be a good possibility. Which of course means, again, if you never look, if you never allow it to be one of the possibilities, you'll never see it if it actually shows up. Um, so that's the one positive that I think came out of that. I'm very sympathetic. <coughs> yeah, me too. So. I'm for all for speculation and you know playing with one's imagination and, and expanding the possibilities, right? So I was. Um, so one other thing that's always kind of puzzled me is the. You know, Stephen Jay Gould has famously said that, you know, if we rewind the tape of evolution on Earth, you might not end up with us, right? So this, the role of randomness in evolution, is there anything more we can milk out of just saying, well, this random set of circumstances? Is well. there... Are, are there people doing experiments like if one something along the sequence that we now understand quite well was different, what could we end up with? Are there simulations? Um, curious of. Um, so, so I think um, one thing that is becoming clear now, especially in cell experiments, when you, where you can replay the tape, you can keep running it, take the same set of cells, you can do all this in the mm. laboratory. It's not like watching zebras over you know thousands of years and so on. Um, and that's a very big focus these days of evolutionary studies as well, because you can work so quickly and see mm. so much. And the answer there seems to be replaying the tape gives you whatever answer you should get based on the environment you end up in. So as opposed to saying, I can tell you exactly the route this took, usually you can't do that, but you can say, if you're ending up in an environment that has the following, then it's going to succeed in the same ways it does now, more or less, with some variation. And so largely it seems to, to be, um, if you replay the tape, at, to, the, to the same endpoint, then you're going to get the same result. But it's like it's like knowing. So coming back to my methane atmosphere. Yeah. So if you run your simulation and say, well, you're stuck in a habitat that is going to be methane rich, then what happens? We can right. play that game now, right, right. with right. the cells. Yeah. Here's here's what I want to do if I live in methane. Mm. But if you if you said uh, so, here's the sort of root mm. issue. Suppose I said. I'm going to live in methane for a little while, and then I'm going to live in an oxygen and nitrogen atmosphere like we do. And then you said, okay, I'm going to play the tape differently, though. I'm going to swap it, and I'm going to do just the opposite. First, I'm going to live in this one, then this one, but then I'm going to come back to this one so that my end point is exactly the same, but now I went through a totally different route. 
then the answer at the moment seems to be it only matters what the end point is, not how you got there. And often evolution does seem to, to take all the routes it can. One thing um, that the modelers, you mentioned modeling, one of the things that modelers have often found is if you work in very high dimensional spaces, and these are all high dimensional spaces, because they're spaces of I could make this mutation at this time, then this mutation at that time, I have a whole a lot of different mutations, a lot of different times, I could take all kinds of different routes, it's like traveling from San Francisco to New York, I got all kinds of ways, I go through Dallas, or I go through Chicago, or I go this way, or I go whatever, I got all these different routes, and um, the thing is, I can't tell, I can't tell anything, when I see the car in New York City, I don't have any idea where it came from. Um, so I think, but I think that the the, the rule of thumb seems to be um, in, a high, in high, these high dimensional spaces, it turns out pretty much always easy to get from some point to some other point, but you can't tell what that route was. Mm. And presumably as well, so thinking in, in sort of practical, tangible terms, you know, when we say, oh, the environment is, you know, it's a methane environment or it's mm -hmm. oxygen rich, there are many other aspects to any given natural environment Absolutely. that may have a subtle or not subtle influence on what's been Even going more on. important influence. Right, and so in reality, so in a, in a laboratory condition, maybe you do have that case of you, you will always end up kind of looking the same, but in a, in a more realistic environment, there will be differences at some level because of the complexity of the environment itself, yes. I would imagine. Absolutely, and this is really interesting because this has been a, a huge puzzle. One of the grand puzzles really of Darwinian evolution is um, the, the, the idea of, of in normal evolution is winner takes all. If I have an environment and this beast can take better advantage of living in that environment than this one can, this beast wins and that beast loses and you never see this beast again and you only see this beast, winner take all. But if that's true, how do you explain all the diversity of life? That we see today. And this is very difficult to explain. And so it, it, this comes down, I think, the answer sort of is shaping up to be something along the lines of exactly what you just said. And that is, sure, I have, if I'm a cell, I care about sugar, I want my glucose or something, I need my food. But I also care about other stuff in the environment, and all of those things can be coming in at all kinds of different levels. And so niches are sort of everywhere. We can, and you could think about this in a sort of a corporate world too. You know, it's amazing how many different kinds of Kleenexes there are, or toothpastes, or something like that. You know, somehow <laughs> there's a niche for everybody. They seem to be able to survive. I, I, I mean, I've thought about that, and it always seemed to me that this idea of survival of the fittest isn't quite right. It's more like survival of the fit enough. Which is good for all of us. In certain sense, evolution is sort of a tautology. It says what persists, persists. So any species or creature, well, not a single creature, but any, any sequence of, 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 of ancestry that does well enough not to be extinguished is still here. I mean, it's again sort of circular, tautological, yes. and certainly niches help with that. But even in the absence of niches, even in exactly the same environment, you can have quite a bit of diversity of things flourishing. You know, right. you go to the rainforest, and there's not one kind of tree or one kind of right. beetle. There's, you know. 
an insane but, number, is it? But let me object slightly to your point about survival of the survivors. This has certainly been an objection to uh, evolution of, well, how would I define fitness in the first place if it's anything different than just surviving? You know, what, is there any, anything there besides just being a tautology? You know, you survive if you survive. But the classic case um, that argues that it, there really is something more to it than that uh, was in early 1800s England. This is the, there's a, was a moth uh, called the peppered moth. And in the old days in England, the trees were fairly white with speckles. And the moths ended up, they were fairly white with speckles. And so the birds didn't see them. They'd land on the trees and the birds didn't see them. But then, from the early 1800s to the middle 1800s, the Industrial Revolution happened in England and there was soot everywhere. And the trees turned black from soot. And what happened was the moths that evolved were black. So the peppered moths were still around, the black moths were there, but the peppered moths were the ones that all got picked off by the birds then. So the argument about survival of the fittest, what it comes down to in a case like this is survival I think the wording is not great because it really does sort of point you in, a, in that direction, point all of us in that direction. But um, survival is a property of the whole population and I, I want my lineage to survive. But fitness is a property of the individual and so here's a case where the population ultimately survives. You know, various moths are going to get picked off and not picked off, black ones and, and peppered ones and so on by the birds. But um, on average, the, the individuals that survive more are going to be the black ones. And so you can say, well, blackness is what fitness is all about in this case. I have a mechanism that's the individual thing, and then the individual thing propagates to the population. So I think uh, probably if Darwin recognized that this was going to be a problem, he could have or somebody could have figured out a different way of saying it that doesn't make it sound too tautological. Yeah, otherwise it's too convergent. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And not contingent enough, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't give you a sense of sort of what models, uh, you know, what's the mechanism under underlying any of these things. So that's, I mean, coming back to, I guess we're supposed to be talking about life in the universe, that suggests then, right, that one thing we could say about life elsewhere is there will not be a planet of all where only life is a single type of organism exactly. with identical yeah. Yeah. structure because that is not yeah. how any yeah. of this works yes. and that's going to be a universal yes. truth. Yes. yes. But there should be diversity anywhere. Yes. We can't predict exactly what kind of diversity. Yes. Yeah. And it makes us worry a lot as we lose diversity these days. Um, uh, another uh, related to that is the point about diversity in early origins and there's a sense that in the old days there was sort of the sense that well somehow or another some cells arose and they got competitive with some other cells and and the cell lineages were already were competing with each other because that's sort of the fundamental uh, feature of biology is this Darwinian thing about competing and so forth but there's this view now this uh, this guy Nigel Goldenfeld at uh, Illinois and this view very interesting and I think um, it's very sensible and that is that the way life emerged was not, you know, your family competing against my family and so on uh, among all the animals and species and so on. It was this big um, soup of proteins and nucleic acids 
and it was sort of like one organism and the separation out into individual lineages didn't happen until much later and it's interesting because you see this reflected in bacteria there's this thing called horizontal gene transfer mm -hmm. and bacteria so so Darwin's tree of evolution says, you know, I came from my parents and my parents came from their parents and all this stuff. And so it's like a tree all the way down. But the thing that bacteria do is they violate this tree in a big time way because they just cross over here. They just pass their genes over to anybody who wants them and, they, and the genes get passed around. That's called horizontal gene transfer. <coughs> that stuff happens all the time. It hap happens in us too. We got cells, uh, most of 10, 10 times more cells uh, are bacteria in us than are us cells and they're so in the our microbiome. gut yeah, yeah. So our microbiome and those cells are doing this kind of swapping all the time was modern technology pushing medicine towards that direction of, very much uh, yeah 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 direct transfer again yeah it's that's it's hard um where that, that there's a lot of activity going on right now in kind of the the microbiology world to try to figure out the microbiome and how much does your gut have to do with your health and gee could i re, could i f reconfigure your gut if you're not healthy and things of that type um the difficulty with it is it's harder way harder than studying a single kind of cell because you're studying an entire ecosystem and everybody in there is sort of they've got their neighborhoods and their communities and it's like new york city but it's in your gut you know it's complicated <laughs> I think there's also been a lot of debate about the microbiome and humans or any organism that has a microbiome and you know darwinian selection in terms of this idea of the holobiont mm -hmm. so you know the microbes in you what their interests are, what they want or need may be different at some level than what you need. Right. And so when you look at a human being... Oh, but what, this is a big philosophical question. I mean, I think so what the microbiome is not you? I mean, I would think no, it no, was you. No, this is purely right. from, a, from a sort of Darwinian fitness point of view, right? Are you, when you look at a human, when I look at Dennis, do I evaluate your evolutionary fitness in terms of <laughs> your cells and what you're doing or your, that <laughs> or your microbiome or the, the, the com combination of that? Yeah. And I know some people have been saying that the, the selectable quantity is actually the, the interaction of all these things yeah. in some sort of abstract yeah. sense, which is very, very fascinating yeah. to me because that's sort of moving away to a, a different sort of definition of complex life that's yeah that's not selectability is can be really complicated and one of the things that's uh, of great interest right now is that um, we make these things um, it, they're mathematical things and they're called fitness landscapes and they look like hills and what they're supposed to represent is that organisms that are more fit are higher up the hill and organisms that are less fit are lower down the hill. And so these, these are just sort of simple mathematical cartoony kind of representations of that idea. So the idea is, okay, let's, fig let's see if, I, if I, we can figure out what kind of organism is more fit than what other organism. Here's the problem with that, and this is what's kind of new and really interesting. That's not the whole story. It's, there's another thing that people are calling the Red Queen hypothesis. What that amounts to is... Uh, you have also you have predator-prey relations. It doesn't. It's not just about me fitting my environment, just an individual. 
and that individual's personal fitness or the or the lineage for that environment. It's, great it's the exactly it's it's the interacting with everybody, and so the predator prey thing is. Let's say I'm the prey and you're the predator, and we're sitting we're both sitting at some level on this fitness landscape. You're equally fit and I'm equally fit or whatever. And now you start chasing me, but you're chasing me around um, certain changes that can be made biochemically in me that have nothing to do with me cha uh, changing my fitness, improving it or making it worse, or you either. It's just you're chasing me. And so you get better at capturing me, and then my genome evolves, and I get better at avoiding you, and then you get better at catching me again, and I get better at avoiding you. And it turns out we're running around this hillside, never making it any further up. But we have to do this because this is part of evolution, too. And it makes everything even more complicated than it was. We've talked a lot about evolution, and I want to suggest that Priya invited us to be imaginative. So <laughs> let's try to imagine uh, a life form or a life on a planet where evolution isn't really a major factor, it doesn't work very well. And let me motivate this by saying, I think people are kind of a little hand-wavy and vague about what evolution requires because they go, oh, well, we just have to have self-replication going and then we'll get selection and we'll have evolution. But really there's a lot of factors. You have to have a flexible way of storing information. It has to uh, express, that information has to be expressed some way, otherwise there's no selection on it. It has to make accurate copies, but not too accurate, otherwise there won't be any mutations or changes. But it has to be accurate enough that you're not forgetting information faster than you're, um, uh, faster than you're generating it. And the errors that you make have to be non-deterministic, otherwise you'll always go in the same direction. So they have to, in some sense, be stochastic or random so you can explore this whole landscape of, of, of different fitnesses. And there was one other. Oh yeah, and you have to have, a, since all this takes energy, you have to have a stable metabolism to, to drive it. So all of this uh, fooling around uh, with the information content has to go on without destroying your ability to, to uh, make copies, either through metabolism or destroying the copying mechanism. So there's, a, there's quite a set of fairly complicated requirements for evolution to occur the way it does uh, on Earth. And obviously, uh, it does, you know, we do have those mechanisms here, and it's played, as our discussion has illustrated, a, a dominant role in determining what life is like on the Earth. But there might be systems uh, you know, made even out of the same beads on the, you know, the same basic biochemistry, which don't satisfy all of those things. And so you can have life and some of the things, some of those factors, but it just doesn't evolve very well. well I, can, uh, I can think and of that. that might lead to just a contradiction. Exactly, those kinds of simulations would be just yeah, fantastic. So there you might find a planet which only has one type of life or something. Yeah. Well, what it, what it made me think of, and it's sort of jumping forward a bit, it's almost it's a very science fiction-y idea, it's an outrageous idea, so I'll, I'll say yeah. it. Um, and it's, it's not unreasonable. It's still, in principle, something that would happen sort of naturally. Imagine a species, a sophisticated species, sort of technological species, decides it does not want to evolve anymore. Right? <laughs> Just says no. Because, I mean, right. this is always comes up when we talk about interstellar travel and moving around the galaxy. The truth is, by the time you end up on the other side of the galaxy, you're going to be a different 
biological entity right. because of evolution. But suppose some species decide it doesn't want to do that. So what it does, it says, okay, there's no more biological reproduction. We're going to build a machine and it's just going to pop out clones on demand. And you'll have a lifetime and you'll die and then you'll be you know, buried, but when you're not reproducing biologically. And, and now, so the question is, it, assuming the environment is stable, I mean, that could conceivably exist, right? And it's, it's a sort of rational decision, right? I'd kind of like us to all stay the same way. Right? I don't want to end up with tentacles or whatever in a billion years' time. So, so that could, I know that sounds like it's an artificial thing, but it's not, right? It's, it's a evolution to the point where you make that decision. Sounds well, kind of boring. boring. I'm sorry? It sounds kind of boring. Yeah, yeah I mean, sure. You know, maybe so it's, you've eliminated, it's an unimaginative species. Sex, you've eliminated <laughs> sex from their lives. <laughs> well, you know, sex, sex with reproduction. So you could still, you know. So there's, <laughs> you know, it would require an arrogant and narcissist species. I wonder where we could find one. Yeah, how far we'd have to look to find one. So there are examples of exactly what you're talking about. Andrew Murray at Harvard has done a really interesting experiment. And it turns out if his cells live in a very fixed environment and they never change, they start jettisoning all kinds of stuff that has to do with evolution. So there's this notion of... Um, the evolution of evolvability. And so the sense is that certain organisms, if you're in a very fluctuating environment, you have a lot of machinery to be able to sort of handle all of those fluctuations. But if you're in an environment that's very fixed, then you can throw a lot of that stuff away and you don't need to evolve. But then, of course, the problem is you're really brittle. If all of a sudden, someday, global warming or something comes along and just changes slightly what your environment looks like, Bang! Your your kind of all, every your whole population is dead. You know, I also want us to um, think a little bit about. It, it's quite possible that a species might actually not have the curiosity to go seek out other species, right? That's another part of the anthropomorphic uh, sort of view that we carry around. I mean, there could be sort of a more content species that has somehow learned to live better with his environment than we have. Um, well, there are humans, now, people now, humans, who <laughs> said, don't go looking for aliens. They're going to come and eat us or something, <laughs> slave us. That's a view that, that, that people now hold. Or they are, you know, that's one view, but yeah. there, there are also people who think we shouldn't be spending all this money right. on space travel or space rides or colonizing Mars or whatever else, and that maybe we should save our planet, we should uh, eradicate diseases here, and learn to live better in or better hardly, harmony. We're hardly spending any money on those things. <laughs> it's right. It doesn't even it doesn't make a mark in the federal budget, really. We're not spending money on either of those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, it feels it, yeah. it's all it feels it feels like it's yeah people people object to the attention being given yeah. to these things. I mean, as you say, the amount yeah, of actual so money. Yeah, it's not so much the money. It's about the sentiment, right? Yeah, but it's, but it's interesting. So I'm um, just to be devil's advocate because mm -hmm. I mean I basically agree with you, but in the big picture, the Earth will not stay in a condition that is good for us. And, you know, that could happen on time scale of 100,000 years, it could happen on time scale of a million years, or whatever. Irrespective of how green we become and careful we become and, and so on. So there is this bigger level question of, you know, <laughs> 
and this is you know one of the excuses someone like Elon Musk uses for going to Mars. Well, you know, it's a backup plan, right? <laughs> it's the really long-term picture. Um, Earth, like any planet, it's it's good for us now. In fact, it's been in a period that has enabled humans to emerge, and it hasn't always been like that at all, and it won't be like that again in the future, no matter what we do. So I just wonder, I mean, the difficulty with it, that's really long-term planning, right? And we're not good at that as a species, which is interesting from an evolutionary from point an of evolutionary view. From an evolutionary point of view, because Why there's a fundamental that? mismatch yeah. in the kinds of timescales on which we have evolved and the timescales. Perhaps it's the contrast uh, between evolutionary timescales and our lifespan. Yep. Maybe that's what it is that is making us such short-termy folks. Well, if, I mean, once you start thinking down those sorts of avenues, um, and maybe this is relevant to one of your future roundtables about the Anthropocene. <laughs> right. Because we've, you know, hate or dislike or try to avoid death uh, and, you know, at an individual lifetime level, we sort of conceive that wise behavior for our species, for public policy, would be to resist changes in the environment. To, you know, there, there's even this idea called, uh, what's it called, Gaia, uh, that, that the biosphere in general tries to stabilize the environment. I don't actually see any evidence at all for that, in my opinion, but, but would that even be a good thing? And, you know, there's this view that, um, you know, the, the, what do they call them when most of the species die out? I've lost the phrase. The mass extinction. Mass extinctions. Extinction. Mass, mass extinctions, extinction. right. There's the idea that mass extinctions are, you know, that there might be one coming from either human causes or other causes, and we'd better do something about it. But we wouldn't be here were there not mass extinctions in the past. And indeed, you know, the whole history of life, which we're so fond of, that not only because it led to us, but because it led to the Right, but the difference is, but the difference compared to um, previous mass extinctions and our being here is the accelerating lever arm that human activity has provided, right? And, well, and so this might be a mass extinction from which we may not recover at all. Right, and we may not. Something probably will. Well, yeah. And it's, it, it does seem to be yeah, going maybe. fast, but I'm not sure it's went faster than you know the asteroid that crashed down. Well, who, who says that humans have to survive anyway? Exactly. Anyway, I mean, I'm, we're, we're, we have our turn, and we're yes. going to be gone. I mean, right. A far, I totally, a far, more, exactly. a far more wonderful species could come well, could along in plants. the space left by us that has yeah. these traits of you know deep thought and tranquility, and you know yeah. we have to get out of the way. I mean, we just don't know. Or maybe not, or it's just our, our iPhones floating through the galaxy. <laughs> There's an experiment in cells that proves your point, and it has to do with time constants. You know, your, what's my lifetime uh, span versus when am I likely to see my next mass extinction or big uh, devastating event or something? You can do this in cells, and it turns out what you do is you put... Uh, you put drugs in, and cells don't like drugs. These are ones that knock the cells out. So you put drugs in, and you do it sort of periodically. And if you do it sort of on a time scale where the cell says, okay, now time is fine. Okay, now I'm getting hit by drug, and back and forth and so forth. Then the cell develops these resistance mechanisms. 
On the other hand, if the time constant is pretty slow over the population time, they just jettison that stuff. They don't need it anymore. And I suspect maybe we're, we're a product of that, too. The difference, of course, it's argued to answer my own question is we have foresight about the future that presumably cells don't have. Yeah, in so principle. So, so if we cause a mass extinction, it may be feeble compared to the one that was caused by when the great ox, you know, when the... Uh, you know, when photosynthesis changed the atmosphere to an oxygen one, but presumably the organisms that gave off all that oxygen didn't have any way of evaluating what its impact would be uh, in the future. So maybe that uh, offers us some greater, I don't know, responsibility or that something. That raised a question for me. So where is this foresight? Because we're all made up of cells. Great no particular question. cell in my body knows the future. Right. And yet somehow, I think I know the future. Oh. Where is that? Where is that? This collective intelligence somehow, yeah, right? From and is it just me? Or do I need it? Or do I know it in relation to everybody around this table? Well, actually, I do know a lot of it in relation to the people around this table because they're my sources. But. Um, that me? No, no, no. Maybe it was the aliens. <laughs> yeah. Eavesdropping conversations. We asked a question earlier, or made a comment earlier about maybe these other life forms. Um, nonsense to us is important to them, and so forth. So that would raise the challenge. How would we ever find such life forms if they were? interested in what we would call nonsense? Would, would they be discoverable even to us? Yeah, I mean, that relates to also, there's a thing in the discussion of SETI and um, the efficiency of transmitting information between stars mm -hmm. and also keeping it secure. And so I think actually this, this bizarrely enough came up in some conversation somebody had with Edward Snowden yeah, I was going to say, or Palantir, for example, I can imagine. So this idea that, you know, um, perfectly encrypted, high-efficiency data is indistinguishable from noise. <laughs> so the aliens talking to each other across the cosmos, we might not yeah. even pick it up. Yeah. see it as any sort of structured information. It's just more cosmic hiss. Um, that's not, I know that's not quite what you were, mm. you were talking about, but it triggered that thought in my, my head. Okay, uh, I'll open it up for questions. I don't think you were on. No. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, we're open for questions from the audience. Okay, these, this is not a question, but a, a, a few observations uh, directed primarily to Dr. Natarajan and Dr. Dill, uh, and then anyone else if you allow the time, which is unlikely. Uh, so, uh, one, oh, no, that I reject. One minute. All right, so. Um, in terms, the, the, two, the two factors that I've really noticed uh, are, of course, that of anthropomorphism and that of imagination. Um, so I'm going to 
give examples of why this is more important than it may not be apparent to some. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a couple of uh, scientists did, uh, took a mathematical model of Darwinism in order to try to answer the question, uh, what is the benefit that death gives? And long story short, uh, it was discovered that for a particular group, not a whole species, but for a group, the food resources that are available on a generation-by-generation generation basis uh, extends or diminishes life expectancy. So that is... Uh, the, the value is not for the current generation, but for the next. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, in terms of SETI and radio communications, we're a very young species. Radio waves are the beginning. Um, again, relatively recently, counterfactual uh, entanglement allows uh, entanglement between particles that never have to interact and it's also secure without using a non-quantum key. Which means that if they're anything like us, except hopefully they've been around longer, a, billion, a million years, a hundred thousand years, uh, they may be using counterfactual um, uh, communications, which in fact has been already demonstrated in the laboratory. And if they're a little bit like us and ha didn't uh, destroy their own planet, and they're there, uh, it may well be the case that they are, are making assumptions that we also are using quantum communications of that nature, which is why we're not hearing a damn thing. Because we're not there yet. It's still in the lab. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll just finish with why I'm motivated by it as Einstein. Um, imagination is more important than knowledge because knowledge is limited, but imagination encompasses the entire universe, and that also in, engages not just space, but time. In other words, the use of imagination to uh, look at potential futures is not only um, wonderful, but necessary. That's it. Uh, maybe I, I would just no, say... I, I said from the beginning that it was... Shut up. I already said it wasn't a question. So I just wanted a response uh, from yourself. Yeah. Sure, I think Ed wanted to say something. And, uh, yes, yes. Uh, Any, just just yeah. very, very briefly, I would say that Many of the more thoughtful people in the SETI community have long admitted that our best chance of hearing from classical radio SETI would be if our putative extraterrestrial civilization was sending signals intended to be easy for us to pick that's up right. and understand. <laughs> rather, wanting, rather, wanting to make contact. That's why I raised that point earlier. Rather than us eavesdropping on something they intended for each other or whatever. And I can comment on your, on your first point, which has to do with longevity and energy uh, investment. If you look across species, you see exactly that, that uh, some species live quite a long time and others live a much shorter time and a lot of this has to do with when do you have babies and so if your uh, physiology is such that you have babies early in your lifespan you will die early so you're just needed long enough to have babies and then after that you're not anymore and so for example we can compare us to species like uh, one that's called the naked mole rat which turns out to just live a very long time for example and uh, and what you discover is we if that evolution could have, if we look at them, uh, these other species, evolution could have designed us differently. We could have lived a lot longer, but we didn't because this is how long it takes for us to have kids. Before I ask my question, I'll just comment on the SETI project. 
I have a background in electrical engineering. Electromagnetic waves are a very inefficient form of communication. They do not penetrate solid objects or electromagnetic objects like stars. So a more likely means of communication would be either what the gentleman mentioned, yep. quantum communications, entanglement, or neutrino communications, which, you know, we, we have no technology that I'm aware of uh, to use neutrino uh, communications. But my point, um, you know, the entire supposition that there is extraterrestrial life of any form, let alone technological life like us, is based on probabilities. And the probability of our having evolved on this planet with perfect conditions for us to have evolved is pr still practically zero. And it took us one-third of the life of the universe for us to, to evolve, to be technological beings. If you change one single factor in our evolutionary course, if, you know, if the asteroid had not hit the Yucatan 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs would, certainly mammals would not be ruling the planet. Reptiles probably would be. And I don't think they would be broadcasting sitcoms to uh, <laughs> Cosmic Ether. I mean, they so could be broadcasting the equivalent of dinosaur sitcoms, dinosaur <laughs> communication. I mean. But again, another technological civilization, if it existed, probably wouldn't, wouldn't know where to look, which is what yeah. was discussed before. But let, but let me let's see if I remember my question. My question is, <laughs> since it took us one-third of the life of the, uni of the known universe for us to evolve, an extremely unlikely evolution. Does anybody believe that in the short 14 billion years that, the, that our universe, our visible universe has existed, that there would be uh, a replication of that evolution or anything comparable to it? Well, there's an interesting well, the story. probability is we probably have, just too low. But we have no I idea. Can I just say, you're making an awful lot of assumptions, <laughs> including that we have any idea what the probability is exactly. that we're here. I mean, Ed might want to comment on that. Ed has written beautiful papers about this. Right. Um, the level of ignorance is but extreme. We, but we know somewhat the probability of our own evolution, because we know what the steps were. I wouldn't And they were trillions and trillions down. of yeah. steps. <laughs> trillions and trillions of improbable steps. But this is Change all, a single one yeah, and you get no, a different I, outcome. I, 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 I see your point, but it's all about interpreting things after the fact. The after the fact. Well, and that so is let's, let's start with the probability of a replication of evolution to a technological civilization within the short 14 billion years. I, I, I would disagree <laughs> because I think the, given that just Unless you think we started on Mars, the probability that we evolved on Earth is one. We're here. That's one data point. So, yeah, that's there. So I can tell you an interesting story. This is back in 1972-73. Francis Crick, the famous guy who discovered the uh, double helix, 
worked with a guy named Leslie Orgel, and they put out this idea called directed panspermia. The idea of panspermia had existed a long time before. Panspermia means that life has existed in the universe before, and somehow it ended up here. But panspermia, the old idea itself, was just, hey, it's everywhere, and it landed here, and that's why we have only one genetic code, because there was this one bottleneck, and it sort of was the thing that landed on Earth, and so on. Anyway, what Crick and Orgel did was they gave these talks, I heard one as a graduate student, and then they wrote this as, as a paper called Directed Panspermia. And Directed Panspermia, the idea is, no, it's not that there's just life everywhere in the universe, it's that somebody out there is sending something straight to Earth for some purpose, and that's, they're trying to get us going. And we could not, those of us who were in the audience couldn't tell if these guys were, I mean, they're, they're, they were super first-rate scientists, both of them, whether this was your leg a, or <laughs> yeah, whether this was a legitimate scientific hypothesis or whether this was a British sense of humor. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it, so it turns out this became quite well-known idea, this directed panspermia thing. In the meantime, um, I think now the whole scientific community has kind of dismissed it, including Crick. Before Crick died, he then became sort of an RNA world guy. But well, just a footnote to your comment, a footnote to history, it was not Crick who discovered DNA. In honor of uh, International Women's Month, uh, it was okay. Rosalind Franklin. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, One of Good afternoon, ma'am. Extraordinary debate. Um, my name is Anthony Finberg, by the way. I run a company called Eagle Genomics, and we're building technology to explore the microbiome, not just the human microbiome, but the microbiome of the Earth. And uh, I've got so many ideas I want to try and string together in a very simplistic way. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm not a biologist. Uh, but I am a cyberneticist. And I just want to talk about the Gaia the thesis, first of all, in a, in a quasi-scientific way, starting by just making a bit of a contrast. So we have most of the debate today focused on the happy accident, Francis Crick's happy accident, never to be repeated, versus some conversation about determinism. <clears throat> I don't know whether anyone has, um, is familiar with Eric Smith's work, the idea that the Earth is a giant battery okay. and that the citrus cycle as the basis for this chemical breakdown means that life is an inevitability on this planet. <clears throat> that was one idea. The second idea is we talk about holobiome. You know, and that's really an anthropomorphic, anthropocentric view of the holobiont because... The soil is a microbiome, fundamentally. <clears throat> plants interact with the, with the soil. We interact with the plants, etc., etc., etc. So, I want to close. Yeah. yeah, sorry. So, I just wanted to try and expand on the ideas of determinism, Gaia, and on the idea of the holobiont to ask the question about whether that might get us a bit closer to understanding what life actually is. Um, one word answer, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, yeah, yeah so we have this tendency to, to think about things in isolation. Yeah, or very linearly, right? Right, right. so right. if we put it in a test tube and study it, we'll understand it. But of course, nothing actually lives in a test tube in the real world. And I think I see this coming up also, this is slightly different, but in the field of um, AI research, people talk about, oh, how do we you know, make a, a general AI that, that is like us? you're doing it in a test tube and I don't think that's ever going to work. It has to somehow be out in the complexity of the universe in order to, to develop 
more skills. So I think, yeah, I, I, I don't really have a good answer. I'm making a comment to your question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I'm not sure how we're going to yeah. fully incorporate the enormous complexity of the entire biological system of the Earth. Maybe, maybe one comment. Um, there's a lot of complex systems that share a lot of features, and I think we could learn from looking at each complex system and the other. One example of this is that uh, Sergei Maslov some years ago, who was at uh, uh, um, LBL or BNL, sorry, Brookhaven, uh, looked at software usage, how many software packages call other software packages, and what it was a story about is that some stuff is really useful, writing a little code that adds two and two, and everybody uses that, and then there's other codes that are more complicated and so on. Looked at the complexity of software codes, and he, then, he also looked at the complexity of biochemistry, and he discovered the distribution functions of these things are identical. It's as if by, what we learned from the software, looking at the software, was that there's sort of swappability and there's usability and stuff that's really good and useful, you just use it as much as you can. And there's, if, there's a, a broader field, too, of uh, what some people call explore and exploit, computational modeling, where the idea is you have complexity and you're trying to search a landscape, maybe some complicated mathematical function, and you're trying to look for the, the say, the mountain peak or something. And how do you find it in the most efficient possible way? Well, what you do is you, you, do, you have sort of two modes. One is when you think you're headed up a mountain, you just go for it, and that's the exploit part. And when you don't quite know where you are, you're going up a little and you're going down a little, what you do is you just keep doing random things. It sort of splits into an entropy-like thing and an energy-like thing. But it's how Monte Carlo people and how people who do supercomputing protein folding in, in our kind of world, for example, um, all kinds of things uh, that function in some, somewhat similar ways. They find answers in these sort of with the swapping off randomness and, and optimization. And I think another example of this is industrial innovation. Um, if you ask, so one of the one of the examples that comes up often in in origins questions that comes up in origins is. Um, chicken and egg problem. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, that's a badly posed problem because chickens and eggs come up together. And, and so it's not, you don't get one or the other and then boom, the egg pops open and out comes a chicken mm -hmm. for the first time. And um, if you, there's, there's sim and so this has to do with sort of the sequence of events that things can happen. If you look at industrial innovation, it's very similar to this. And also the origin of evolution of the eye, for example. What's the evolution of the iPhone? Well, you can say, well, okay, let's see, is half an iPhone, this is the, the argument about an eye, half an eye would be useless, therefore there's no fitness value, therefore it couldn't have evolved and it had to have come from some other thing. What about half an iPhone? Well, half an iPhone, there was half an iPhone, but it's not sawing it in half. That obviously would be a useless thing. Half an iPhone was, what happened if we, when we started back in the 1940s, we invented computers, we invented transistors, we invented GPS, we invented internet. Those were all the threads. So half an iPhone was sort of between 1947 and now. What would it have been? It was probably, half an iPhone was probably an Apple II and it was large-scale integrated circuits, 
and it was some clumsy version of an internet, and it wasn't anything that looked like an iPhone, and it was not goal-directed in any way. And so I think that the, all of these complex systems, um, there are commonalities that we should be exploiting somehow or another. I don't know how to do it, and I, I think your point's right. well, very well taken, though. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the only uh, sort of brief comment I have is that you're absolutely right that probably what we need to consider are networks that facilitate life. So connections between conditions. So it's a much more complex problem than yeah. saying whether you need oxygen or water or, you know. Yeah. I, I, I sort of would go back and thinking about the issues you raised and the issues a previous question raised is we're a little bit back to trying to study dogs with just one example of a yeah. dog to look at. I, I think Eric Smith's work on these uh, cycles are a brilliant description of what yeah. happened on Earth. Are they relevant for what's happening on Who other knows? planets? We just don't know, I, I would say. And again, we have to keep track of what we know and we don't know. And we, you know, that question number two is how different or similar are we if there is other life out there is, I think, something that we fundamentally don't know. What are the ways we might find out? One, which I think Ken has been talking about, is we may understand biology and what's happened on Earth at a deeper and deeper and more systems level so we can see the patterns that might be the same. And of course the other is to search for life elsewhere and if we find it we'll learn such. My undergraduate mentor Philip Morrison who was one of the pioneers of, uh, of SETI actually once said, you know, finding a single example of life every, anywhere, I think he said finding life on Mars would change life from a miracle to a statistic. So uh, we have to uh, probably try both of those. I mean, we are trying, and I think should continue to try to, you know, advance in both of those ways towards towards answering those sort of questions: what's contingent, what's convergent. But mm -hmm. but we shouldn't pretend. And it's fun to talk about this, but we just don't know until one of those programs of research succeeds, or hopefully both of them. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, I, I don't know if you discussed this before I got here, but my question is about the extremophiles and the types of life you find in sulfuric lakes and in thermal vents and the, something like the tardigrade where, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's going on with these creatures and do they share DNA with us? And uh, Yeah, good question. Yes, they do. They share DNA with us. Um, they, it's interesting. There are studies now where you can take a given organism that's a, a mesophile that grows at our temperature, let's say, and the same organism that's the thermophile equivalent. Um, so it does the same things and it has DNA that's pretty similar, except it just happens to live at the higher temperatures. And you can ask what are the differences, and now there's something like 50 different thermophiles for which a lot of the proteins are known and understood clearly and so forth. It's an interesting process. You can rationalize to some extent how the proteins changed and how they became better at doing their folding up and doing their um, enzyme activities at the other temperatures. And so they, but they otherwise, they're organisms just like us. The DNA, you know, across species, the DNA is very similar. The difference between everybody in this room is about 0.1% in your DNA. The difference between all of us and chimpanzees is about 
1% and between us and the great apes is something like 4%. And it's the same thing with thermophiles and mesophiles. The differences are really small and subtle. So we can't really talk about the absolute requirement for life, though, in terms of... No, yes. exactly. It depends on the environment. And also, just to add, I mean, those extremophiles, we call them extremophiles. Many of them do not do well in our environment, right. our preferred environmental conditions. So to them, we are the extremophiles. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.